One thing that we've seen about inflation, though, historically, is that people do adjust eventually, right? It's not that prices go down. It's that people adjust to the new price level, and then they look for additional shocks to the prices to get angry again. We've absolutely seen in the FT poll that people are really unhappy about what they call inflation, but what I would call the price level. But I do think that over time, that's something that we will adjust to. So I think that's what one thing I'm going to be looking for in the next few rounds of the FT Ross poll is, are we seeing now that we have the rate of increase kind of under control, are we seeing people shift more attention to, oh, how's my job or am I getting a raise this year instead of what's the price of the grocery store? Welcome back to the Business and Society Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Karub from Michigan News. On today's episode, we welcome three experts from the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business to discuss business trends of 2023 and what to look out for in 2024. To discuss the current state of business, we have Marcus Collins, Clinical Assistant Professor of Marketing. Welcome to the podcast, Marcus. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure thing. We also have Sarah Miller, Associate Professor of Business Economics and Public Policy. Welcome to you, Sarah. Thanks. Happy to be here. And last but certainly not least, we have Eric Gordon, Clinical Assistant Professor of Entrepreneurial Studies and Strategy. Nice to see you again, Jeff. Right on. Let's get started. We'll open with a question for all three of you. Last year, we saw some drastic changes in many factors of the business world, from labor actions to COVID-19 recovery to rising prices due to inflation and boycotting actions. From your respective areas of study, what do you think is the most impactful trend from 2023? Sarah? Well, I'd say in economics, the big story from 2023 was the tightening and improving labor market that was coupled with the decrease in inflation. I mean, think everyone was wondering, could we come out of this high inflationary period we saw in 2022 with a soft landing, which means not forcing the economy into a recession to bring down inflation? And I think it's been a huge success Over the past year, the unemployment rate's been under 4% for two years now. Inflation's finally down to about 3%, still a little bit above target, but much better than the 9 or 9.1% that we saw in early 2022. And the tight labor market's really opened up, I think, a lot of social movement, social factors that wouldn't be possible. I think a lot of the interest in the labor movement, for example, that we see is coming because the labor market is so tight And employers have to sit down with employees at the bargaining table. You can't just replace your employees with someone from a big pool of unemployed workers, right? So I think um, the 2023 trend, I would say, is on the labor market side, at least from the econ perspective. On the marketing side, I I think that uh, the biggest trend is tribalism. Uh, Tons of tribalism with regards to commerce. I mean, you saw uh, Taylor Swift. Beyonce and Barbie have a tremendous summer. One would argue they were the summer. Um, And these consumption behaviors had little to do with the category, right? You know, Beyonce, Barbie, Taylor Swift, they all represent something, stand for something beyond the category. They transcend it. And the people who see the world similarly, who subscribe to this ideological representation that they signify, they engage in commerce as an expression, right? It's an outward expression of inward beliefs. We see it in commerce. We see it in politics with the tribal-based political behavior, the discourse not being about legislative ideas, but being about social perspective about how the world should operate that's being driven or predicated on our 
cultural subscriptions. Um, so this notion of tribes, of community, of, of networks of people who share a similar perspective on the world, these things are informing how we consume, where we go, how we vote, how we show up in the world, how we navigate the phenomenal world that we'll call you know, society. Well, but your two answers right there. I mean, do they work at cross purposes? Does identity trump economics? And therefore, if this soft landing actually happened and some people want to celebrate it, others say, mm, I don't feel it, right? The vibe economy we're hearing about. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, that, I don't know if there's, there's an answer to that question, but I just wonder if, there's, if, if these things work at cross purposes, not together. I mean, sure. Well, we saw that the economy empirically doing well on all measures, people still feel like, say, I didn't feel it. It didn't feel that way to me. Because of the discourse around their people, right? If we're getting our news from social settings like Instagram, TikTok, and the like, then what my people feel are probably going to have a sway on what I feel because these things aren't empirical. They are by nature subjective based upon what people like me do. Yeah, I think that's we see something really interesting in the Ross Financial Times poll, which I know we'll talk about in a couple minutes, hopefully. Um, but one thing that we see is that actually young people are saying that they're more dissatisfied with the economy, even though elderly people tend to be the ones more objectively hurt by inflation since they're not in the labor market and they're not experiencing the increased earnings. Actually, earnings have grown faster than inflation. So people who are working and experiencing these earnings gains should be feeling better off, and yet they're not. And it's also young people that are most likely to say they're getting their news from TikTok or they're getting their news and they're learning about the economy from TikTok or Instagram or other social media sites, right. whereas older people tend to report in our poll that they're getting their news from more traditional sources. So I think there is a tension there. Yeah. Eric, any thoughts? Well, in my world, which is uh, mostly entrepreneurship and venture capital and IPOs and M&O, that kind of stuff, um, M&A, I think the most impactful trend was interest rates. So they are, in fact, returning to normal, maybe even the low end of normal. You wouldn't guess that from listening to people. I just looked this up before I came in. As of yesterday, the effective Fed funds rate is 5.33%. 1975, they were 12.5%. In 1981, they were 18%. And 533 is just slightly below normal, where normal doesn't include after the financial crisis or after COVID. So the last decade is the decade with the lowest rate. But the return to normal uh, is important because... Uh, the wildly abnormal low rates, one, fueled the inflation that we experienced, but it also distorted capital markets. So money flowed into projects and companies that will never pay back the money. It was money that could have gone into projects and companies that were productive uh, instead of speculative fantasy machines. The entrepreneurship end, I mean, we saw companies that in normal times couldn't have raised a dollar and a half raise $100 million at a valuation of $2 billion. And, and that money has gone up in smoke. And it affects not just my world of uh, startup companies, early stage stuff. A lot of people's retirement money went into that because mm -hmm. we had new kinds of investors. So venture capitalists are used to, you know, wild and crazy stuff. That's how we are. But a lot of supposedly conservative mutual funds became tourists in the world of venture capital. And they're the ones that put in huge amounts of money at really crazy valuations. And their money includes 
people's retirement money. So getting back to normal, knocking the, the insanity out of startups, uh, out of M&A, uh, will probably be good for all of us. I wanted to ask about hopeful trends, but I think in each of your answers, there was something there was something hopeful. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Maybe a good sign as we as we move into this election year? Well, I think that they have positive consequences and negative consequences, right? From the tribalist perspective, when people are just moving because of vibes, you go, well, you're kind of missing what actually is real, objectively real. But on the other end, people are finding their people. And as social animals, by nature that we are, that are wired to belong, to want to belong, to be in community. And the communication technologies that we have access to, like social networking platform, they allow us to find these fractions of society where we feel like we are finding our people. And that's a powerful thing. And I think that's how all things are. Like you take the good, take the bad, take the both. There you have the facts of the life. The facts of life. Yeah, that's a throwback for y'all. Go on. I love it. Come on, Eric. You got to feel that one. Come on. Yeah, no, I— no, <laughs> That's I, a throwback. I'm, you got to feel I'm, that I'm, one. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm, I'm also feeling <laughs> good about the fact that we've learned that we, we did survive COVID. We survived it medically. We survived it economically. I mean, we, we thought we might all be dead medically. Mm-hmm. We thought there. we might all be, you know, <laughs> living on the street economically, that it was going to be the end of the world as we saw it. And uh, you have to have uh, some confidence in either our resilience as people, some resilience in our systems that we made it through it, not without bruising. We didn't make it through it equally well. But in fact, it's not the end of the world. And as you know, Marcus and Sarah was saying, you know, the economy is actually doing quite well. And there was good news today about new jobs. So, you know, the the news seems to be. You know, not monotonically always better, but the trend is we're doing better. We've gotten through it. And I do think that, like, this idea of the vibe session, the, you know, the feeling that you're economically worse off than what the data actually are showing is a short-term phenomenon. It's a sort of a short-run phenomenon. And usually there's inflation, people aren't happy, but prices can only go one way, or at least if things are working as intended, prices are only going one way. People adjust to the new price levels, earnings adjust to the new price levels, and people equilibrate. And I think um, there is an optimistic future in 2024 as inflation continues to be low, people's earnings are high, and I think the the feelings about the economy and the reality of the economy are going to come closer together. Yeah. And, and that's also a byproduct of the storytelling. Um, the cultural producers, call it media, uh, talking heads, the way we talk about our experiences, they become sort of the the social nodes that we exchange as, as currency between us, between our people, so we get a sense of, are we on the same page here? Do we see the world similarly? And I think that those folks have their finger on the scale and, and they're swaying the vibes uh, on what feels like reality when, in fact, it's not. There are a lot of realities, that's that's for sure. And that's a, that's a powerful thing, though. It's like, you know, the world isn't as objective as we think it is. Right. The world is very, very subjective. That's why for some, a cow is leather. For others, a deity. For some, it's dinner. Which one is it? It's all those things, depending on how, how you see it. So while we may say it sort of you know pejoratively like the vibes, but it's a real thing, right? And I think that it's an incumbent upon us as a university, as a school, as we talk to our students, to not only frame the, the facts in their objectivity, 
but also understanding that people make meaning differently. And the way we think about putting products in the world or how companies go to market has to have those things in, in mind. And that's just me. I'm a marketer. So it, it's, it's kind of always uh, front and center for me. Right. Well, I did allude to this being an election year. And I wondered if there's any effects that we might see this year that differ from 2020. What are some ways that businesses change how they operate in an election year? And might this have changed over time? You want to jump in, Eric? That's an interesting question because it could be actually 2020. It's all over again. All over again. <laughs> uh, somebody said this, uh, Marcus, Sarah, maybe you know who this person is, that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Uh, mm. So we may be going into that. I didn't come up with that. That's, that's somebody. It's quite clever. Yeah, I, well, I wish it did. Yeah, that's how you know it's not me. It's <laughs> clever. <laughs> you know, I should, I'm attributing it to the unknown clever person. <laughs> It's um, like John Coltrane or something. Yes, yes. That would be that. That would be trained. That would be good. Yeah. Um, Let's say so. Yeah. I, <laughs> Why not? I, I think, vibes. The vibes. <laughs> I I think we are going to see um, a really almost desperate election year mm. on both sides because let's assume Mr. Trump is the Republican. As we're sitting here, it looks like he will be the Republican nominee. Uh, he carries a lot of baggage he didn't carry last time around. Um, he's had his troubles in court and out of court since then. So the image that he was able to use last time, he can't use. So it's going to be more difficult for him. It's going to be more difficult for Mr. Biden because Mr. Biden was, if you didn't live in Delaware, for the most part known as being Mr. Obama's, you know, sort of bag carrier. Um, now we have learned more about him. And he's, he's struggling a little bit with the difference between fact and perception. In fact, uh, one of our colleagues uh, who's uh, working on the FT thing, uh, Jerry Davis, who is an M&O professor, um, is cooking up a pretty good analysis about the difference between facts uh, that relate to Mr. Biden's term in office and what people think have happened. So mm -hmm. people think one thing has happened and the numbers would tell you something else. Um, and in fact, we have put into the FT Ross poll a couple of sneaky questions. So we asked the same question twice. Since January 2021, is the economy better or worse or about the same? And then we asked the same question differently. Since Mr. Biden took office, is the economy better, worse, or the same? And we get two different answers. If you leave Mr. Biden's name out of it, you get one set of answers. If you put Mr. Biden's name into it, the answers become much more negative. So just his name has become a problem. In fact, I, I wonder, maybe he should change his name. <laughs> uh, that might help his election. I think it's going to be a difficult campaign for both of them. Uh, anyone else want to jump in a bit on on this being the election year and how businesses might respond, change in real time to what's happening? Again, back to this idea of, of tribalism, that when companies typically step out to endorse a candidate, for instance, the UAW endorsed Biden, you know, you're basically not just deciding what candidate you're going with, you're choosing a side or what tribe you're a part yes. of, right? And the divisiveness between these two factions, they put us at odds as human beings. I mean, think about this, like 30 years ago, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, you know, I didn't know people's political affiliation. It wasn't very visible. Like it wasn't as conspicuous as it is now, but 
our political affiliations become ways by which we peacock ourselves to the world. And they're saying something about who we are. And when I see you express your political affiliation through the I'm with her hat or your MAGA shirt or whatever the case may be, I make an assumption about who you are. And as a result, I engage with you accordingly. So to to Eric's point about the framing of Biden's name next to the performance of the market having a sway on how people see it, we do the same thing with individuals and companies want to feel the exact same thing. So the sense of tribalism that's creating this division between us as a country, companies have to decide, you know, do I even want to be a part of this discourse? Companies that normally or industries that normally would back one candidate or the other, I think the stakes are a lot higher than just where I'm placing my vote. Right. Based on what's happening. Exactly. Yeah, Marcus, I wonder if you have seen trends in this because I, this is a totally unscientific view, but I feel like from just being on social media or observing the world around me that companies are starting to get a little bit more wary of stepping into this very energized, controversial, uh, you know, meaning-laden kind of discussion. In 2020, when I think back, companies seem to be rushing to the very forefront to express different political opinions, right. express opinions on things like the George Floyd murder or mm-hmm. on other social topics. And now I feel like there's been a certain amount of pulling back. Is that something you've seen? 1,000%. And you could thank Bud Light for that. You know, the, <laughs> the Bud Light debacle last year, essentially, it became a, a lightning rod in the marketing industry, at least, Brands say, I don't want any of that. None of that blowback. I don't want any parts of that. So brands start to kind of pull back from this idea of having a purpose, having a point of view in the world beyond what we do, to being much more value proposition driven. Like, hey, we're here for exchange, which sort of backtracks on all the progressive marketing that has taken place over the years and that we want to establish relationships with consumers, not just exchange money for products, but we know who you are and you use us as a way to signify your own identity. Uh, But after Bud Light, there's been a lot of recoil. I mean, we got Super Bowl coming up. You're not going to see a lot of heavy ads. You're not going to see a lot of brands saying, you know, some manifesto about how they see the world. It's going to be jokes. My razor sharper, my battery lasts longer, my car goes faster, right. my shampoo will give you body, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. And you, that's what you're going to see. And I think as we get deeper and deeper into the muck of of politics, you're going to hear less and less from brands who are going to speak up about issues that affect their people because they don't want to lose the the commercial exchange. I wonder if part of that has to do with a lack of sincerity in expressing these views. So maybe this is just the cynic in me. Go for it. (laughs) But, um, you know, sort of like virtue display. Mm -hmm. Do we really, are we really behind this? Or, whoa, does this serve our marketing purposes to have people think we're behind this? And then as soon as the wind blows the other way, it's, oh, this isn't working for marketing, so we're going to back off as opposed to, I really have a deep conviction in this, and I will take the hits. It makes me wonder a little bit about whether they had a lot of conviction or as much conviction as they displayed mm-hmm. Or some marketing guru like you said, wow, this would be a good thing to put into your brand identity. Yeah. And they go with it until it's a dangerous thing. Uh, you're not wrong at all. I mean, there's always that virtue signaling that feels, I mean, when, it, when you see it, it's, like it's so inauthentic. You know, come on, it's not a, a real thing. The sad part about Bud Light, if we just sit on this for, for a moment, you know, Bud Light for years had been an advocate, a supporter for the LGBTQ plus community. In fact, I worked on Bud Light 
back in 2012, and I did marriage equality work for them. And a client looked me right in the eye and said, hey, this community matters to us. So when they did the partnership with Dylan Mulvaney, in my mind, I was like, yeah, Bud Light would do that. They've had, they've had receipts, right? Which you never really see much of brands have receipts of uh, standing for a social issue for as long as they have. But the minute they got pushed back, the minute they had some resistance, they flinched. And what happened is that the people that they've been supporting well over a decade felt alienated. Like, what, what, what happened? I thought you were with us. And the, the people who boycotted them, they weren't like, okay, but like, you're fine now. Now everybody hates you. And the people who are in the middle, they go, I don't want any of this smoke. I'll just drink Modelo. And as a result, Bud Light share drops. They go from number one to number two, Modelo to number one. So, Eric, the, your cynicism is actually right. It's that when a brand is going to be convicted about something, you have to stand for it by its very nature. Convictions that I stand for a thing, even if I'm the only one. And the brands who do this well, those are the ones that continue to speak out on social issues no matter what the context is, right? Ben & Jerry's, uh, um, Patagonia, even Nike. These are brands who have points of view about the world and they stand on it regardless of what the pushback is. And the difference between them and those who are virtue signaling is that they are very much convicted about it. This episode is sponsored by the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Through our podcast, you connect with the people and experiences that define the Ross way. Check out our other podcasts, such as Business Beyond Usual, an exploration of the full-time MBA experience, and Working for the Weekend, a deep dive into the part-time MBA experience on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We've mentioned the Financial Times Michigan Ross Poll. We've mentioned Jerry Davis. Each of you, in addition to uh, Jerry and Tom Lyon, are involved in that Financial Times Michigan Ross Poll. As we are three months into the poll now, uh, what are some particularly surprising findings? You've alluded to some some new ones. Is there anything else that jumps out? So one of the ones that uh, a bunch of us as a team are, are looking into has, has led to a question of what does the CPI mean? So we've asked a lot of questions about the economy. Turns out that virtually everybody, any age, either political party, um, their biggest issue in this election is the economy, followed by immigration. What are they concerned about in the economy? I would have thought job loss, because if you lose your job, uh, that's pretty traumatic. Now, inflation is number one. Job loss is a little bit down the, the thing, maybe because the job market has been so good. But what does inflation mean? So the CPI numbers show that the rate of inflation, the rate of increase in pricing, has gone down. Still a little higher than everybody's targets, but it has really gone down. Huge progress there. In the poll, you don't see anything like that. So my question to the government is, do you need a new CPI? What does it actually measure? I mean, I do know what it measures. You can look it up. But customers see inflation through the lens of their own lives. So, you know, they see it through their visit to the grocery store, their visit to the gas station or the drugstore. When you say to somebody, but the CPI number says this, they just look at you and say, well, I don't, I don't care what the CPI number says. All I can say is, you know, inflation is up. And this goes back to something Sarah said earlier. I hear people say inflation is up. We see this in the FD poll and inflation is not up. 
prices are up and are they conflating inflation with price level? Price level is not what the price level was two years ago or five years ago. But if they think that prices have to go down before we've conquered inflation, they're going to wait a long time. I think you're right that what people care about is they go to the grocery store and they remember before COVID, it was a lot cheaper and now it's a lot more expensive. And that doesn't mean that year-over-year annual inflation is high. It's, it's again, it's a little bit above target still. I think it's a little bit over 3%. But what they're really thinking about is how much did it cost me to get these groceries two years ago and how much does it cost me to get them now? One thing that we've seen about inflation, though, historically, is that people do adjust eventually. Right? It's not that prices go down. It's that people adjust to the new price level, and then they look for additional shocks to the prices to get angry again. We've absolutely seen in the FT poll that people are really unhappy about what they call inflation, but what I would call the price level. But I do think that over time, that's something that we will adjust to. So I think that's what one thing I'm going to be looking for in the next few rounds of the FT Ross poll is, are we seeing now that we have the rate of increase kind of under control, are we seeing people shift more attention to, oh, how's my job? Or am I getting a raise this year instead of what's the price of the grocery store? And Sarah, the timing is important because will they make that acclimation adjustment in time for President Biden to be reelected? Because if they make that adjustment over the next two years, he could well be defeated on the inflation issue Um, just because of how slowly we adjust, not how slowly inflation has been controlled. I mean, you're right. I mean, I once paid 59 cents a gallon for gasoline. I don't go to the gas pump and moan and groan. That's I've acclimated to that. But uh, we are what, as we're sitting here, we're 10 months, nine months out. Will people acclimate in time? Yeah, the timing the, really matters. The clock is ticking. I mean, I, I don't know that they will. And even if they do, I'm not sure that it's, it will be enough for Biden to overcome these very strong negative feelings about how he's handled the economy. Whether we think that's fair or unfair, it's just the reality. And one of the interesting things in this poll is, although there is partisanship, the, the Republicans think he's doing a worse job than the Democrats. The Democrats think he's doing a bad job, yeah, too. Yeah, totally. That's, that's, it's partisan. There's a partisan difference. But the really bad news, if you are part of the Biden uh, House, is the Democrats think he's done a bad job on the economy. They think he's done a better job on some other things. But... Uh, if the economy remains the number one issue, uh, it's tough slogging for him. What's been coming to mind for me is that the Biden administration needs to do better storytelling. Like the storytelling is just terrible in that, you know, it's not what you say, it's what people hear. And as much as, you know, you get in front and say, the numbers say this, people go, yeah, 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 but this is what I feel. Yeah, 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 but this is what I'm experiencing And if we're not framing it in a way that's congruent with their experiences and making meaning out of that or trying to help rework or refashion meaning, it's going to be a tough road to a sequel. To, uh, and for and Biden. When, you, when you talk to or you hear from the people in the Biden campaign, this is their number one frustration. Their number one frustration is that their story isn't getting across, which leads you to say, well, what are you getting paid for? <laughs> <laughs> if the story isn't getting across, you can blame it on me being an idiot, yeah. or I might say, 
Uh, you've got to be a better storyteller. Yeah, but, but they're very, very frustrated. That was the same criticism during the Obama administration as well, that they weren't really good at telling the things that they've done well, the successes that they have. The other side has been better at telling stories. Now, what's true or not, you know, that, that that's up to your, your meaning-making apparatus. But by and large, the ones who tell the best stories are the ones who are better at activating people because stories are the currency by which we influence each other and also act in concert in a world that as hyper-polarized, as hyper-tribal as we are, stories are going to be the, the primary currency to get people to see the world one way and act accordingly. So this has even reached your world, Sarah, right? Economics, narrative economics, I mean, absolutely. I think if you look at how people are behaving and how they make their consumption choices, you know, in class, we just draw a demand function and we say, <laughs> well, you just find the equilibrium. But there's there's a lot that goes into the generation of preferences that um, people like Marcus have a lot to say about. I think we've touched on this, um, Marcus, especially when you were talking about storytelling, effective storytelling, which for those of us who make a living telling stories, it's good to hear that storytelling matters. Uh, business leaders and change makers, if they're looking at the polls or similar polls, how might they use these polls to make decisions in 2024? How does storytelling translate into the uh, change maker and business leader realm? I think it requires taking the data and finding the meaning in it. I mean, Eric kind of spoke to this already. Like, we're seeing the numbers. The numbers are saying this. Not what the numbers are, but what are they saying? And I think for wherever side of the camp you are on, the ability to see the behaviors of the market, understand why they're saying what they're saying, doing what they're doing, how they're translating the world, and finding a way to speak to them in a congruent way that's aligned with their meaning-making system, those are the ones that are going to make connections, right? And we are just constantly looking for, for ways to feel validated, for ways to feel seen. And, you know, if you take like the MAGA movement, like that entire thrust is moving on the notion of shared ideologies. And on the other side of the house, the Biden side of the house, the thing that's keeping that together is just the fear of what could be, right. <laughs> as opposed to here's how we collectively see the world. And while that may work in the first fight, this is a different sequel. This is not like a repeat from 2020. There's, to Eric's point, there's tons more baggage. There's more chapters to that story now that are going to be a part of how people evaluate it. And being able to communicate in ways that people feel like they're being seen and being heard, I think it's going to make all the difference in the world because the empiricals aren't really empirical to people. I mean, this is a constant business thing, Jeff. You know, the simplest thing in business school in your first semester, you look at a balance sheet, you look at an income statement, it's a bunch of numbers. It's not a bunch of numbers. You, you ask the student, look at these financial statements, what's the story in this company? That's right. What is going on here? The numbers are a story if you can decode the numbers into the story. If you can't, then you're a bookkeeper. If you can decode them, <laughs> yeah. then you are a CFO or a CEO and you're a leader. That's so spot on. You live in a world where we have more data than ever before. It's like reams and reams and reams and reams and reams of data. But 
I often still hear marketers say, I don't know my consumer. I don't know my customer. Why is that? Because we mistake information for intimacy. We think because we have information on them that we know who they are. Those two things aren't analogous, right? We have to look at the data and make meaning of it, right? Data doesn't have an opinion. We are the instrument by which we translate and see what's happening. And our ability to see the people inside the data gives us a way to be intimate with them and connect with them based on how they see the world. And, and actually, that's actually one of the reasons for the partnership in this FT Ross Bowl is we're getting lots of data. We're getting lots of data, lots of numbers to look at, but then we're putting lots of brains, you know, on the FT side, um, but, you know, big professorial brains on the Ross side to say, we've spent the money, we have all of these numbers, what's the story? What could the meanings be? And because we have sort of this core group of five people, we actually, amongst the five of us, see different meanings, That's right. which is bringing a lot of sort of power, a lot of, uh, a lot of return to what otherwise could just be a pile of numbers, another pile of numbers. Yeah, right. the diversity of thought, I think, between us helps us get to some richness that we see things that you know, Sarah wouldn't see or that Jerry wouldn't see or Tom wouldn't see. I think that having sort of the heterogeneous perspectives gets us to something really concrete. How about a multiverse of fireside chats? Is that what we need? There's like a lot of <laughs> a lot of different conversations depending on which fragmented, tribalized group you're talking about. It's challenging. It's challenging for business. It's challenging for political leaders. It's challenging for academics, for writers. I would say, though, you know, I think it's really important to have a narrative and to have something people can hold on to. But it's not that the fundamentals are not important. Mm -hmm. So I don't think there's any version of the world where if the unemployment rate were 9% instead of 3%, that Biden would be doing better if he's telling better stories. You know, I mean, I think that there is definitely a role for economic narrative. But the truth is that things could be a lot worse. And Eric touched on this. We really came out of a very precarious crisis situation with covid and I won't say unscathed, but in a much better spot than most people thought we would be in terms of the economy. Our memories are so short, <laughs> so short, right? Not short enough for inflation. That's though. right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. You gotta forget yeah. what the price level yeah. was. That's in 2019. right. I think right. the eggs okay. are expensive. Memes are gonna go on for like forty years. <laughs> I think Sarah's point is doubly important in an election year where we are in narrative city. Um, I, I'm not a fan of you know narrative fiction. I, you know, I, I don't think that we should be making our voting decisions, our consumption decisions on like, like Stephen King narrative. Right. I think the role of narrative is to get the truth across, the accurate points across. If you're in favor of truth, you understand the data and you're bad at narrative. So the people who don't care about facts, who are good at narrative, win the game, then shame on us. Uh, I think the key thing about narrative is couple it to the data so that we get the right decisions made, but don't think that the data by itself is going to get the right decisions made. Ain't going to happen. The challenge is that we are storytelling machines. <laughs> That's the thing is that as humans, we, we see the world through stories and we translate the world through stories. So as much as that may hinder us to your point, uh, we're sort of working against our, our own wiring. Why don't we end in the classroom? Uh, we've talked a little bit about things that you teach. So you're all three actively teaching the next generation of business leaders at Ross. Are there any lessons from last year 
or expected trends from this year that you're taking into the classroom? I'm focusing on perspective for my students. That's why I tell them over the last, since actually since COVID, what I've been focusing on is that the best thing I can give you is a way of seeing the world, a lens by which you see the world. Because I believe things aren't the way they are, they are the way that we are. And if we change the way we see the world, then the world would manifest differently. So we take these fundamentals we know of business, what we know of marketing, what we know of brand, and try to reshape the frame by which we view them so that we might be able to see the world through the lens of people who are not ourselves. And essentially, brands at their core, they are signifiers that conjure thoughts and feelings with regards to company, institution, a product, uh, entity, a, a, a person. And if we are to understand the meaning that is imbued in these marks of ownership, then we have to be able to see the world through lenses of people who are not ourselves. And be to set aside our ethnocentrism is only for a moment to apprehend the world through cultural lenses. Like that's what I'm focusing my students on. So that while they may say, but it's not true. Like these people are dumb because they, they're seeing something that's not really there. It's like, well, actually for them it is. And it's just as real for them as it is wrong for you. And if you don't see the world like that, then you miss out on those people. And yeah, it works in, in all directions at all That's times. right. Absolutely. What do you think, Sarah? Well, I'd say one thing that I'm a big data person and one thing I always bring into the classroom is a lot of data analysis. So just put up the scatter plot and say, all right, what do you guys see here? What is the pattern? And I think that that is kind of one of the lessons I've also learned from working on the Ross FT poll is that the best way to sort of start thinking about what's going on is to just take a look at what the data say and see if you can, like Marcus said, make meaning from it. Um, so I think that that's definitely something that I have done this last semester and plan to continue. So, uh, My classrooms have a lot of entrepreneurship in it. And entrepreneurship by its nature has to be multidisciplinary because you, you can't build a company on one dimension. So they have to know marketing. They have to know data and economics. They have to know finance. They have to know a lot of things. So one of the things I bring to them is Look at this from a lot of different angles. If you look at it from one angle, you're going to get clobbered by something you've goofed up in another angle. And look at your life that way, too. So I always try to, like, you know, I, you know I'm teaching you about how to build a company, but think about life in general. So in your life, you know, when you think about things, are you going to think about things from just one angle and get clobbered by something else? Um, the other thing is entrepreneurs are used to adversity. The deck is always stacked against them. There's some big person who can crush me, you know, can spend $10 million on advertising and I don't have any money and I have to change things. Nobody needs me unless I'm, I'm changing, bringing something new to the world. So, you know, think about your life as a series of entrepreneurial opportunities when you face challenges think like an entrepreneur how would an entrepreneur face this challenge when the COVID thing was going on and we were talking to our students you know who some of them were home in India some of them were in China some of them were home in Ann Arbor and they were facing a lot of adversity and how are we going to get through this I said all right look we think we're entrepreneurs what is a new way of seeing things? Here's new conditions. We love new conditions. How can we adjust to this? And what I said is, you're going to be the first generation that's expert at doing things remotely. This is unbelievable. I am struggling with it. Right. I'm figuring it out. 
you're going to be the first ones who are experts. So, you know, entrepreneurship has a lot of advantages in going through rocky times because we're just used to rocky times. Learning the right lessons from the pandemic. There's a, there's a topic for a podcast. <laughs> this has been a great conversation. I thank you all. That's all for us here at Business and Society. I'd like to thank our guests, Marcus Collins, Sarah Miller, and Eric Gordon for sharing their time and expertise. This episode was made in partnership with Michigan Ross and Michigan News. Make sure to check out the show notes for more details on topics, links to research, and more. Thank you for listening to a Michigan Ross podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Jeff Karub and J.T. Godfrey, audio engineering and editing by Jonah Brockman, and theme music, Lost Einsteins, by Jeff Karub. Stay connected by following our podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To learn more, read full-length articles of the podcasts at www.michiganross.umich.edu slash news.